Welcome back to the program. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, we love you and thank you and praise you for all the ways that you bless us, you take care of us, you watch over us. Lord, I ask that you would bless all of those listening who struggle with the fear of death. Lord Jesus, just uh, I pray that the, the grace of the resurrection, the new life that you won for us in the resurrection, we would know that new life. We would experience and live from the, 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 the taste of that risen life that is at work in us now through our baptism. Lord Jesus, please bless this program, bless all those who listen. And Lord, bless those who are near to death, especially, Lord, those who are near to death but far from God. I ask, Jesus, that you would um, grant to them the special grace of saving intervention. Jesus, break in, speak to them a word that brings them a spiritual resurrection before they face physical death. I pray for those who will die during the course of the hour of this program. Lord, you know each of them by name, and you will the salvation of each of them. So we join you in that yes. We ask, Lord, that you would receive our lives, our prayers, as great acts of penance and reparation to roll away the stone, Lord, in front of their spiritual death. I pray, Lord, that you would speak them, speak to them by name, and as you did in the case of Lazarus, raise them from spiritual death, Lord, before they face physical death. Unbind them and let them go free. Lord, you long for the salvation of all. Let it be so. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I, I was actually looking forward very much to the interview with Kristen Van Uden. She uh, does media uh, interviews for Sophia Institute Press when the authors that, she, uh, that they are representing are not available in this instance. Uh, the book that they are publishing is The Diary of St. Gemma Galgani, um, an Italian young lady. She died at the age of 22. Uh, as a layperson, as a laywoman who who deeply desired and had privately um, taken uh, vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and had such a special love for the Passionists, that religious community. Uh, but just to say, I, when I read her diary, it was uh, it was hard to to wrap my mind around, to get my arms around the fullness of what she was saying. And, I, and I'm looking forward to the interview with Kristen to dive into so many themes that show up in this autobiography that, as is true in the case of so many saints, when you get the the details from their side, their lived experience of things, it's because they were, um, they were required to do so under obedience to their spiritual director or confessor. And this was what happened in her case. And the details are amazing. The details you get from her side of things, the way she writes about the experiences she had, and the way in which it it was so natural for her to have these powerful, vivid encounters with the her guardian angel, 
with Jesus, with the Blessed Mother, and with other souls that, again, you'll find out about it when you have a chance to hear the interview um, with uh, Kristen, hopefully in the next week or so. But it raises a very powerful theme, and, and I'll get to it in a little bit, but the theme is around her love and longing for heaven. Her great longing was for heaven to be with Jesus. And her great suffering, there was a great suffering that she endured, which was having to remain alive here on earth. <laughs> her suffering was in part having to remain alive here on earth. Her great desire was for heaven. Well, interestingly, it coincides with what I am doing today. Even though you're listening to my voice on uh, this particular Thursday, I'm in Palm Springs. Yes, the difficult life of Tom Curran. I'm in Palm Springs and I'm giving a talk at a national conference for Catholic cemetery directors. Yes, that's right. The Catholic Cemetery Conference is holding their, their once-a-year national gathering of directors and other leaders of Catholic cemeteries. And it's, uh, you know, how often do you get to speak in front of a bunch of cemetery directors? And I'm, I'm fascinated. Uh, I, I actually spoke to a, like a regional gathering of Catholic cemetery directors I don't know, it must have been 10 or 10 years ago or more in the Seattle area. And it was a wonderful event. Uh, and, I, and I actually know a few cemetery directors, Catholic cemetery directors. It, it's, it's a small world. So uh, there's a couple I'll be meeting that uh, were at the first parish I worked at when I left the seminary back in 1989, uh, again, I left after my third year of theology, so about a year before I would have been ordained a deacon, and I began to work for a parish called St. Marie in Manchester, New Hampshire, and the head custodian, uh, the head of uh, that department in this church, uh, is he's now a deacon, and he directs the, the Catholic cemetery there in uh, in Manchester, New Hampshire, along with his wife, who was the head of the, the daycare they had at the church as well. So it'll be neat to see them. These are folks that I first met in 1989, and I think the last time I saw them was probably uh, just a decade later, uh, right around the year 2000. And uh, speaking at some conference or, or, or other at St. Marie, and now to see them again after 20 years, it, it it's neat, it, and it gives you the sense of the flow of time. It gives you the sense of time passes, and life moves forward, and it makes you stop and ponder, like these land, like these landmarks, these check-ins. Like, what's what is that all about? I actually enjoy having those conversations with CEOs and senior executives when I would be talking with them, and they would be getting close to the end of their career. They would start asking the bigger questions, the more fundamental questions. Instead of being so immersed in the, the present moment, immersed in the world in which they were living, 
they, as they saw their approaching, sometimes it'd be considered an impending <laughs> retirement. The question is, what do I do now? What do I do next? What do I do from here? And, and here's the reason why. I'm going to use a word, immersed. It's because they were so immersed. I'll give an, another phrase, given over. They had given themselves over to their career. And it really wasn't to their career. It was to their job. It was to their company. It was to uh, their, their employment that they had identified their principal source of mission and passion. That's not always the case, right? It's not it's not a guarantee that if you're a CEO or senior executive of a of a business and especially of larger companies that you by necessity are required to make that your principal passion and mission. But I will say that the default setting, the expected situation that I would encounter is that there was at best, not at best, at least a major arm wrestling match that would go on in their lives between life outside of work and life at work. And so life outside of work would be what? Marriage and family. Life outside of work would be involvement in the church and in other passions that they had. And it, I have faced more than one somber uh, conversations where there was this uh, awakening realization. There was this sort of interventional breakthrough, it was very poignant, where these guys would say, what was that all about? Like, my whole career, what was that all about? Here I am now, sometimes in their 50s, sometimes in their 60s, stopping and saying, what did I just do? It, it's like there's this stopping and saying, I just gave the best energies, the best use of my gifts, my time, my life energy, my life blood to this business, to this company. And what was that all about? And all of a sudden, there's this more reflective moment regarding what was the cost that it took on my family? What was it? What, was that worth what it cost? Was that worth what it cost? And in it, in there's always, not always, there's often a, just a very natural resistance where there's a sense of saying, yeah, but I did it for them. I did it for their sake. I did it so that I could provide for them uh, the resources, the, the, the financial wherewithal for them to be able to get the things they had, live where we lived, have what we have, give them the open doors and opportunities and and uh, be able to go on trips and have stuff, really nice stuff. And sometimes there was this sense of hearing back a message saying, but dad, we would rather have had you. Uh, we didn't really need the stuff. We, we would really have wanted time with you. Or, or conversely, I, I think I really would, would have rather had time with them than have given stuff to them but without being able to be with them. So all of this, all of this to say, I, I'm speaking to these directors of Catholic cemeteries, and it, it's interesting because it seems to me that directors of Catholic cemeteries and, and their staffs 
are in a different position in 2022 than they are, say, in 2019. You go back three years, and you know what I'm saying. What happened in the middle of March in 2020 was COVID. And then you had, well, in some places, still COVID-impacted policies around how people are to congregate and the way they have to be masked up or vaccinated. And still, things are even significantly impacted. And it's it's it makes you stop and ponder, like, what was that all about? What were the last couple of years all about? And a couple of priests, insightful, holy priests, have named it. They named it. That whatever else you want to say COVID was, whatever else you can say, and there's a lot of things you can say about it. One of the things to say about COVID is that it was a great exposer. It exposed a lot of stuff. It was a great, if you will, opportunity for purification because it severed connection with the ordinary life that we were, remember these words, immersed in, given ourselves over to? All of a sudden, there were many things that we were immersed in and giving ourselves over to that were no longer available to us. Did you hear that? You remember, you remember, especially when you have a family, you weren't able to attend school the same way. You weren't able to participate in sports, if, if at all, not nearly in the same way that you did before. And work situations radically, radically different for almost everybody. So it was a great exposure. It was a great opportunity to stop and ponder, sort of like what happens in the lives of these CEOs and senior executives at, at the point of their retirement, as their impending retirement. There was a great moment of realization, of awakening, of stopping and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, my life has been interrupted. My life has been interrupted. There's been an intervention in my life regarding what I think life is all about. And a couple of holy priests were able to name it. One of them in particular continued to minister as a priest. He was a missionary priest, and he had spent time in China. Uh, during the uh, H1N1 outbreak, and in the church in China, there's a degree of being underground anyways. But he had already experienced the kind of lockdowns and, um, and a sense of having to remain hidden and having to operate church ministry in that kind of oppressive situation. And so he continued to, he brought that spirit with him and operated here in the United States. Basically an underground church, going to Mass and, and celebrating Mass during COVID. And you know what he said was the fundamental way that he saw these laws and policies being implemented? They were driven by one thing. What was it? I'll tell you in a minute. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. Today I am uh, I'm in I am in Palm Springs. That's right. I'm about to speak at the National Cemetery or well, the Catholic Cemetery Conference for directors and others in leadership of Catholic cemeteries here in the United States. And I, um, uh, I I'm doing so, uh, and I'm re- reflecting on what it's like to be at that conference post-COVID. I just revealed before the break that 
there was this priest I know who gave really for me the most profound insight into what was it that drove the laws and policies of the the state and sadly even the church associated with COVID. And and he identified it as the fear of death. It's the fear of death. People were afraid to die. And the fear of death drove behaviors. Like we have to do everything possible, everything in our power to ward off death. And while that's understandable in terms of a secular world, why, of course, we should take steps to not um, expose ourselves unnecessarily to the dangers of death. That, that's the sin of being daring. That's not courageous. That's the sin of being daring. That's a, that's a fault in, in Aquinas. Uh, that's a vice associated with an excess of courage. But courage is the willingness to stand up and do what's right, even in the face of death. It's to stand up and to pursue the good, that the good that must be realized will be realized even in the face of a danger, even the danger of death. And there's a reason for that. Death is not the end. For us who believe, for us who have faith, for us who live in the light of our relationship with a good and loving God, death is not the end. And what COVID-19 exposed, they said it was a great exposure, and it, it interrupted the immersion, the giving ourselves over to life that was not reflective. And just like we don't want to live that way when it comes to the most important things in life, um, it's our faith that can inform us, right? But in this world, if you're living just of this world, well, fear of death overrides all else, earth is your home. Life on earth is all there is. Well, how do we deal with the fear of death? Well, what? Well, first of all, what is the, and I'm going to say we deal with it through faith, hope, and love. And I'm going to talk about that today. Uh, dealing with the fear of death through faith, hope, and love. So first of all, what is the, what is the fear? Well, the fear is that death is the end of life as we know it, of life that we know about. There's that big, great unknown of what happens after death. And maybe uh, of death is, is a fear that death is the end of existence itself. And I think that there is also the, the psychological association of fear, that is, you lose control. You don't have choice. And I think that the great, great emphasis on freedom as choice, freedom as having options is something that uh, when people feel constrained and there's this realization that, mm, no, you know what, this, there's something unavoidable, unavoidable, that psychologically, there are folks who just, they're like, I'm out of control because that's unavoidable. I don't like that. And no matter how clever you are, you're not going to be able to figure it out, no matter who you know, no matter how much stuff you have, no matter how much you uh, can can try to finagle the, the your, your life, live as long as you want. Don't like that. It, it's it's there's an un, unavoidability. In a little bit, I'm going to talk about. In a little bit more, I'll talk about the idea of transhumanism under hope. Uh, but for the moment, let's just say that. For most folks, for most ordinary folks, 
the normal strategy is just avoid thinking about death. Avoid talking about it. Avoid facing it. Immerse yourself in the present moment and the present world, like these senior executives. And I think that's a temptation for all of us in our own ways. Just get so busy about the life that we're living right in front of us that we forget, wait a minute, what does faith reveal to us? What does the light of faith bring to us regarding the ultimate meaning of life, the ultimate purpose why we're here? It goes beyond this world. And so today in the program, I want to take a look at the way the, the great gifts of faith, hope, and love that are infused into you. So faith, hope, and love lives in you. As long as you remain in the state of grace, not committing a mortal sin and killing the death, the spiritual life of the soul, faith, hope, and love are alive in you. And my hope is that this will stir into flame. This, will st- this sharing that I have will stir into flame those gifts of faith, hope, and love in you today. And so let's start with faith. So faith isn't just believing what you can't see, right? That's a lot of people think of faith as, okay, I believe in God, that God exists, and I believe the teachings of the church because those are the truths that God revealed through Christ and have entrusted to us. And so faith is believing stuff and believing in a God that we cannot see. And so there's a kind of an eyes-closed mentality to the popular understanding of faith. Faith is believing what you can't see or really know, and so you just kind of close your eyes, buckle up, hang on, and say, I believe, I just believe, despite the evidence. Despite the, there's no evidence, but I just believe, right? That's a, that's a common misconception, very popular misconception. That is not our understanding. That faith is associated with light, not darkness. Faith is associated with seeing, not not seeing. Did you hear that? Faith is associated with seeing, not blindness. Faith, it, it, it literally, it's called the light of faith. The light of faith comes to us through the gift of faith. And that gift, again, is not something you earn. It's not something you deserve. It's not something you figure out. It's not just a matter of having a good intellect where you can say, I understand what the church teaches. No, 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 no. Faith in its deepest dimension is a capacity to entrust oneself to God. It's, it's the ability to trust and entrust oneself to God fully, freely, and completely. That's, that's what faith is. So if you think of a word for faith, it's unlimited trust. Faith is unlimited trust in our good God. So if you think about it, every day we are asked to put our trust in God, put our trust in the Lord who loves us, and is a faithful God. The Divine Mercy Chaplet, Jesus, I trust in you. It's a great act of faith. It's a great act of faith in the mercy of the Lord, who, even when we fail, offers us a fresh start and a new beginning. And so we live by faith. We live by this tremendous act of trusting that the merciful God, the faithful God, is going to preserve us and rescue us from sin and its consequences. Thank God for the Lord being a faithful, merciful God. And this great act of faith is something that comes pressed upon us every day. Right? If you are to trust in the Lord freely, not being compulsed, completely, not partially, and forever, not just in this moment, 
that's going to take some effort. That's going to take some training. And so we practice the act of faith really quite frequently. Think about it in the COVID reality. We had to trust in the Lord, not just trust in the, the scientists and the medicines and the vaccines and the, and the policies and the procedures. No, we, we're trusting in the Lord, right? Lord, thank you for, uh, for taking care of us. And, and how many of you face little trials and tribulations day to day, right? Everybody. We all are facing trials and tribulations on a regular basis. Sometimes they're personal, sometimes they're relational in our marriage, in our home, among our kids, with regards to schooling, with regards to jobs, with regards to finances, with regards to things happening in our neighborhood, in our towns, and in our state, in the world, and in our country, in the world around us, right? Wow. You start peeling back the layers, and, and life is bound up in making acts of faith. Lord Jesus, I trust you, and I entrust myself to you. All that I am, all that I have, I entrust to you, not only my life, but my wife's life, and my kids' life, each of them and all of them, and all of our situations, all of our plans, all of our efforts, all the work we do this day. We trust you, Lord. Okay, so that great act of faith that we make today uh, we make in this world while we're alive. And as the days go on and the weeks go on and the months and the years and the decades, all of a sudden as life gets closer to death, all of a sudden we realize a truth that is as old as Plato. Is as old as Plato. Life is training for death. That was a principle of ancient Greek philosophy, that life on earth is training for death death, for the moment of death, for the act of dying, that we don't have to look at the act of dying as something that is purely passive, that we undergo, that we are scratching and clawing our way to get away from. No, but death is a door. Right? So for the ancient Greeks, it was death is a return to the source or origin from whence we came. We came from the one who put us here, the one who created us. We, there's a, sometimes called a fall, a fall from the, the life that we had with God, the origin, the source. And now we live here on earth and as exiles, and then we're going to return back to our source. That was that flow of moving out from and then returning to God. That, that was a Greek philosophical idea. You can see how there are elements in there that then get perfected, elevated, purified, and supernaturally advanced through the revelation that God has given to the world, first to, to Abraham, right, to the Jewish people, uh, all the way down to Jesus Christ and the fullness of the revelation. And we live in this, in this time of the church, this time of the Holy Spirit, making alive in us the grace of the risen Christ, we share in the reality that we are children of God, that we are children of God. And so that impacts for us significantly the meaning of the idea that life is training for death, that unlike the ancient Greeks, we have a foretaste of the, the life of the world to come, a foretaste of heavenly life a foretaste of divine life here and now through baptism. And so for us, death very clearly becomes a door. Death is not 
the end, but death is a door. And so there's a way in which we can uh, completely open the entire perspective that we have in faith regarding the meaning of death, that death was not part of God's plan, that death is something that has been overcome through Jesus Christ. And when he underwent his passion and his death on the cross, his burial and his descent among the dead, when he came through to the resurrection, he not only rose from the dead from his death, but he took upon himself all human death. That means your death and my death. We get to see in advance the outcome of our death when we take a look at the reality of the resurrection. Christ died for us. He died our death. And when he rose, he rose for us. And he gives us a different vision of the meaning of death. That death is the doorway through which we enter everlasting life with God forever in heaven, the resurrected life. It also, then death becomes a reminder of what's at stake in life, because not only did Christ rise from the dead, he also brought about this radical separation of those who would join him in the call to everlasting life, the call to salvation that God wills for all people, but that isn't a guaranteed outcome for every human being. It shows us what's at stake in life and in death. The ultimate reality of what's at stake in life is not found in this life, but it's found after death. It's found by going through the moment of death, and that's heaven or hell. So if Plato said life is training from death for death, Christian tradition would say you need a memento. You know, like a memento is, oh, a trinket. It's something that is a something you pick up when you go to a place and you want a special remembrance of that place, you get a memento. It's a reminder. Well, in our tradition, there is something called a memento mori, a memento mori, which is a Latin phrase for the remembrance of death. And so if you take a look at paintings of saints, sometimes you'll see on their desk or in their room a skull. (laughs) And you're like, what is that? Well, that was a memento mori, a remembrance of of death. And so that remembrance of death is something that said, remember your last end and you won't sin. If you remember what's at stake in life and what's what's at stake in life is going to show up after death, namely heaven or hell, it's going to impact how you live your life. So this is the perspective that faith gives and so much more, right? So in fact, uh, in the, um, diary of St. Gemma Galgani that you were going to expect if you tuned in, you were going to hear a conversation about that. In the diary, the autobiography, uh, the autobiographical diary of St. Gemma Galgani, she continuously reflects on the relationship of sin to Christ's passion and how when she sinned, it not only impacted her spiritual life, but it impacted Christ and his cross most of all. Back in a minute with more of the program. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. Today I'm talking about 
this Catholic Cemetery Conference that I'm speaking at. Uh, say a prayer for that and for my return trip home later today. Uh, at the conference, uh, I'm, I'm actually talking about, the, 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 the title of my talk is Shine, Becoming a Magnificent Leader and Releasing or Unleashing the Greatness in Those You Lead. And the word is shine uh, for a particular reason, because one of the things that a leader will do is radiate that which is deepest within them, and they, they will shine. They will bring forth a, a brightness into the environment in which they go. And, and directors of Catholic cemeteries, boy, they have an opportunity to shine with the light of faith to anyone who comes through that door, because you'll get folks who are doing some pre-planning work, but a lot of the folks that come through the doors of Catholic cemeteries are those who just lost a loved one. And so to be able to bring the light of faith into the, the presence of those who come through those doors, that is an incredible gift and opportunity that happens, I'm sure, on a day, daily and a weekly basis. So I'm thrilled to be able to reflect on them um, with that gift of faith to be able to um, help them remember life, not remember death, but remember life, the life of the world to come. And so faith. Faith is one of the, the things that will help overcome this fear of death. The second is hope. So, oh, sorry. So let me finish up. Remember now, what is the act of faith? The act of faith is believing in God and believing things that God has revealed, but ultimately it's the act of a, uh, entrustment, and, uh, trust and entrustment. I trust you, Lord, and I entrust myself to you. And that act is marked by three, three features. It's full, it's free, and it's complete. Freely, completely, and forever is my entrustment to you, Lord. I do it freely. I'm not constrained. I do it completely, not partially, and I do it forever. Now, that act of free, complete, and forever entrustment of oneself to God, you can do every day. Every day, you can make that act of trusting in the Lord, especially when you're facing trials and difficulties, dangers and difficulties. You say, Lord, I trust you, and I entrust myself to you. And I do it, Lord, freely. I do it completely. I do it forever. Not just now, but this test, this trial, this difficulty, this, this, this thing that's happening in my life, it's a test, Lord. It's humbling me, and I trust you, and I entrust myself to you. But there will come a time in your life where you get to make that act of faith in, in its fullness. And when is that? Well, life is training for the moment of death. You see, at the moment of death, you don't know when it's coming, but at that moment of death, you will be given the opportunity to make a full, uh, a free, fi uh, complete, and forever entrustment of yourself to God. So the act of dying is not simply an act of diminishment down to nothing. No, it can be an act of fullness to its perfection. Did you hear that? Even though your body and the life in your body is draining away to nothing, the act of the Spirit can be, yes, finally, Lord, I get to make a full, a free, and a forever gift of myself and entrustment of myself into your hands. That's what death is. Finally, I get to, Lord, do that and not hold back. 
you know, Lord, Lord, I give myself to you freely. Well, no, actually, I feel a bit constrained. I give yourself to you completely. Actually, I'm just doing it because I'm feeling it right now. I give myself to you forever, Lord. Well, actually, while things are really difficult and, and not so good on my own, that's when I'll do that. But as soon as things get more comfortable, then my need to entrust myself to you becomes lessened, right? That's the, that's the reality of our lives. And how death is, is the opportunity to give yourself over to the Lord completely. All right, so that's the the act of faith that's connected to um, overcoming that fear of death that COVID re-entered, brought back to the world, shook us in some ways, and and shook the church in terms of saying, why would we hold back in doing the things that are of the greatest importance for our spiritual well-being, not just our earthly well-being, our eternal well-being, not just our temporal well-being? Okay, so there's faith. What about hope? Well, hope is connected to the sense of confidence about the future. And this is an interesting battle that we believers in the Lord and in life beyond death, after death, with God forever as our true home. It's a battle that we will face even more intensely in the days, months, and years to come. Why? We still live in an age where the scientist is the greatest authority. And the scientist operates within a worldview that Father Francis Martin called a closed system, meaning there was no act of transcendence. There's no getting beyond the material, visible world. There is no beyond that is able to be measured scientifically. And so there, because of the so-called lack of evidence of a transcendent world, a world beyond this world, influencing this world, a being beyond this world, influencing this world, in the eyes of certain scientists. And by the way, if you listened to the wonderful interview with Father Spitzer on Tuesday, a couple days ago, you realize how that popular idea about scientists being atheistic is continuing to move away from that uh, actual statistical reality where the majority and the supermajority of scientists are actually believers in God or not atheists, at least at a minimum agnostic. They don't have a sense of secure knowledge about uh, the, uh, the reality of God and how he pointed to evidence for life beyond death in near-death experiences that's scientifically measurable. Okay, with that said, we still live in an age where the dominant culture at a popular level would say, put all of your eggs in the basket of this world. Your hope is to be found in this world, in the life that is visible, measurable, and in front of us that we experience right now. And so when that's the case, then what is the ultimate threat? Well, it's death, right? If all of life is contained in the material world and in the confines of the time of our lives, well, then death is the biggest threat. So great strategies to avoid threat, uh, to avoid death, right? Let's not talk about it. Let's, in fact, find a way around it. So what what do you end up having? You end up having a, uh, a scientific approach to somehow overcoming the uh, that old axiom or that old uh, chestnut 
that uh, there are only two things unavoidable, right? Death and taxes. Well, we'll see what they can do to get a, get rid of both of those as well, including death. And so you, you've heard me mention occasionally and briefly the concept of transhumanism, which is associating the idea of ongoing existence beyond the physical death of my body by somehow uploading my consciousness into some kind of digital form so that I can continue to exist in my consciousness with my memories somehow uploaded or through some kind of cyborg type existence of mechanical, digital, computer, software, (laughs) and physical reality. So that's a nightmare. Uh, And in fact, why would people pursue that? Well, you can see they would pursue that because if death's the end, then avoid it at all costs. Use your money, use your smarts to try to conquer the physical death here and now um, on earth. And um, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing to compare that to hope in a Christian perspective. St. Augustine would say that the threat is not death, but something else. What is that? What would be the threat that Augustine sees around the reality of death? It's not death itself. Uh, what does he say it is? Well, get ready. He pointed to the fact that Adam and Eve lived in what church theologians now call the preternatural state, meaning the state before the fall, their state of being, their condition before original sin. And in that original condition, they had a certain relationship to death. Well, what was that condition? It didn't exist. So they had the possibility of living life here on earth in the Garden of Eden, obeying God's commands and not experiencing death. They had the possibility of not dying that death was not part of God's original plan, that death entered the world through the act of disobedience and pride and mistrust that original sin is. And that introduced the consequences of this rupture in our relationship with God, including physical death. And he says that in a fallen world, a world that's not fully redeemed, there's only one state of total despair in this world while you're alive. And that state is not having the possibility of dying. Isn't that fascinating? Adam and Eve had the possibility of not dying. He said that the state of despair in the current fallen world would be the impossibility of dying. If you couldn't die, that would be a horrible situation to be in because you can't get beyond the fallen world. Back in a minute. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. You know, and it's funny, I go back to St. Gemma Galgani, uh, amazing biography. Again, I'm still pondering it, still wrapping my head around it. It's really just so fascinating to get on the inside of a saint who's writing about her experiences, but some of the language she uses is so interesting. And some of the ways that she was living her life at the time, it's, it's going to be a fascinating interview when it happens, hopefully again next week. But In the meantime, just to highlight, not only did she associate the concept of sin with Christ crucified, that her sin was impacting Jesus, that was her principal uh, fear, that was her horror, that was what made her despise life on earth, was that sin was hurting Jesus, the one he loved, she loved. And the second was, for her, her hope was 
that she would die. Her hope was getting getting to be with Jesus. Please, Jesus, take me home. When her mother was dying, she didn't want to leave her bedside because she didn't want to remain behind on earth without her mother. She wanted to go home to heaven with her mother. And throughout her diary, she's constantly asking Jesus, when can I come home to heaven? I'm like, wow, talk about hope. And so a Christian, their hope is so fundamentally different than the hope that exists in those whose vision is contained in this closed system of the world. So death is not part of God's original plan, and so there is a sting associated with death, but it's by faith, hope, and love that we overcome that sting. And so this leads me very naturally to the concept of love, that love, when you think about the nature of love, the the Christian and Catholic understanding of love, it's always pointed out towards another, um, not just an object. Like, uh, I love this world that God has created, but the deepest form of love, the most proper meaning of the use love is associated with another person. Love is directional. I love you. It's not so much I love this. Yes, you can be committed to a, a, a project or a... Uh, part of God's creation. But the most profound use of love is towards God, first of all, and then towards other human beings. I guess you could say also towards angels. Um, So the the idea of love is it's relational. It's a desire for the good of the other, a desire to be with the other, a desire to be in union with the other, with the beloved, not just the other, but the beloved. And so True love becomes the solution to selfish and self-centered living. A life that's focused on my own desires for myself, for my comfort, ease, satisfaction, pleasure, etc. And self-centered desires, the desire to orient the concerns and, and attention and energy of my life around myself and my well-being. Those are things that need to die. We need to die to self, die to selfish and self-centered desires in our lives. And this is, again, another one of those battles that we're going to have to fight, because if we allow selfish and self-centered ways, uh, desires to be prominent and dominant in our life, guess what we're not going to like? We're not going to like death. We're not going to like death because I don't, I'm not at the center <laughs> and it selfishly, I don't like it. So uh, the introduction of dying into selfish and self-centered living is a spiritual good that we begin today. Today, you'll have an option to experience a type of death, the dying to self, the dying to selfish and self-centered desires and ways of living. And what we can learn, what we hopefully will learn, is that when we're willing to go through death, this dying to self, we'll discover a deeper flourishing in our lives. We'll discover the good that comes to our lives by dying. Ooh, from death to life. 
from dying to selfish desires and self-centered living to loving to be- the, the 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 focus on the other on another human being on the beloved on what he wants for my life and once again i just I'll reference the this striking diary of saint joma galgani it's published by sophia institute press that she was someone who was so focused on the beloved, on Jesus, on loving Jesus, and on loving the saints, especially the Blessed Mother, but then these other holy souls that would appear to her, and her guardian angel. Oh my goodness. The relationship she had with her guardian angel. Wow. Holy cow. I mean, it's like Padre Pio level relationship with her guardian angel. I can't wait again to discuss it in more detail, but what shows up is the more that she focused on loving Jesus and the saints and the heavenly life she was called to, guess what she also embraced with fervor and a passion? Dying to self. Dying to selfish and self-centered ways of living. This became a pursuit of hers, and it wasn't a self-centered pursuit. She wasn't doing it because she would flourish more. She did it because of love, because of her love for God. And so when we die to a self-centering concept, we learn that that's the path to living well and loving well. Well, that's the cross. That's that's crucifying love. That's self-sacrificial love. That's a suffering. That's humility. It purifies us of self-love. And it then opens us to an encounter, and a profound encounter, an ever deeper encounter with that authentic union that we are made for, that ache in the heart we have for God, and then the others that God has placed in our lives. And in fact, what ends up happening, let's go back to that near-death experience concept, is, uh, and I met someone, my neighbor, his name's Dean Braxton, and many years ago, we discussed the book that he wrote about his near-death experience, which wasn't really about death, it was about his encounter with Jesus uh, at the, you know, the four courts of heaven, right? He didn't get to enter fully because he wasn't dead. (laughs) I mean, he came back. Um, but it, while in heaven, he had this encounter with Jesus and saw, you know, the realities of heaven and the saints and described heaven and the music and the worship of heaven and, and on and on and on in his book that's called In Heaven. Well, when um, he c- comes back after like an hour and a half, he is revived on the operating table. He ends up um, describing describing his encounter with Jesus. Well, one of the most profound marks of his uh, return is that everything here on earth is dull compared to heaven. Everything here on earth is flat compared to heaven. And the vibrancy of the most vibrant colors and, and sounds and sights were so dull and flat to him compared to what he had tasted in heaven, what he had experienced and seen in heaven. And what did he want to do? He wanted to die. He just couldn't wait to get back to heaven. Lord, why, why, why? And the Lord 
you know, he didn't want to leave and the Lord sent him back. And now he goes around talking about heaven to get people pointed back to the reality of heaven that we are made for. And so faith, hope, and love are the answer. They're the answer to uh, the COVID exposure of a worldly approach to life, a life that we're invited to do, a life that we are invited to live so regularly here on earth is what? A life that immerses us in the day-to-day, immerses us in the things that are valuable in the eyes of the world, money, fame, power, stuff. Uh, And, you know, those fulfilling experiences, all of those things that we are drawn to and to give ourselves over to, we can become immersed, submerged in a way of looking at life that is completely worldly. When I say worldly, I don't mean materialistic, but I mean worldly from the sense of ignoring the supernatural, ignoring the heavenly, ignoring our true home, our most profound relationship, what we are made for. And that's what we must overcome. That's what we must battle to do, is to live in time with an eye towards eternity. Live on earth with an eye towards heaven. Not only for ourselves, but to teach and to train and to foster that way of seeing life and living life in our homes, in our kids, in terms of the things we talk about, in terms of the things we make priorities, in the terms of the things that we form our kids to see. Pull the sting of death, point them to Jesus crucified, give them that great encounter with the living God, and they too will have a longing for their true home in heaven. Thanks so much for being with me. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.